Last night I said that Mockingbird's mission, the thing that makes us different, is that we tell the truth. When the emperor has no clothes, we say, hey, that guy is naked. And again, drawing on the theme for the conference, we want people to have clear eyes. We want them to be able to see reality as it is. So, as I said last night, when we see that people are bad or that people are desperately sick or that people are uh, curved inward on themselves, we call a spade a spade. When we see that people are blind and don't even know how to fix themselves, we talk about that. Uh, And when this applies to Christians too, seeing as how Christians also fall under the category of things known as human beings, uh, we mention that as well. I think about Mockingbird a little bit uh, like a, a living out of that 1980s uh, era commercial for Apple computer. It ran during the Super Bowl. It's one of the most famous ads of all time, and it showed this kind of future dystopian Orwellian world. There was a Everything was gray and dark, and all these people were working inside of a factory, you know, their, their souls being crushed by this oppressive system, and there's a giant screen there with this figure on there kind of telling people to conform and saying just oppressive uh, things. And in this awful future world uh, runs this blonde, tan woman. She looks like she's just gotten off the beach, Malibu. And she's running in, she's wearing a white tank top and short red shorts and carrying a hammer and she runs in and hurls this hammer at the screen and shatters the whole thing. And Apple's making a lofty claim about who they are, you know, they're kind of shattering the old way of doing things and and, um, uh, they're against anything oppressive and conformist and whatever. Because we know that with Apple there's no conformity, despite all the iPhones in the pockets of everyone here. So, but she, this woman runs in and represents kind of a, um, uh, something coming in from the outside to break through the kind of oppressive, deceitful system that everybody's fallen under. And I think that's kind of a lofty, um, thing to think, to apply to ourselves. So maybe, um, I, I don't want to exaggerate too much, but I do think that Mockingbird at least tries to come to people who are trapped in a reality that they don't actually like very much and to, tell the truth and to maybe open a window and let some light into that. So when you think about David Zoll, think about him in a white tank top and short red shorts (laughs) hurling a hammer. So, last night I told the truth about people that were bad, that were blind, and that Christians are people. And uh, I said that Mockingbird also tells the truth about God. And that's what I want to talk about right now. Ready? Go. I'll proceed humbly here. I mean, this is God we're talking about. And the thing I want to acknowledge first is that we don't get God right. We have a flawed view of God. Just as I said last night, we have a flawed view of people. We often start on the wrong foot with God. We have to acknowledge also that we don't give a lot of conscious thought to what we think God is like. I mean, do you ever actually sit down and think about, what is God like? How would you articulate the divine being? I mean, yes, we have our doctrine, we have our creeds, the things that we say we believe, but if you look at your emotional life and the way you actually practice your Christianity, and what's going on in your mind and heart, 
and you uh, extrapolate from that who you think God is. You know, you're acting in a certain way and feeling a certain way because of some fundamental assumptions you have about God. And so you can look at how you're living and acting and thinking and feeling and kind of say, well, if that's where I am, what must that mean about how I understand and see God? And when you do that, I think you'll find that at least some of your ideas about God are false and not true of the biblical revelation. And Jesus dealt with this all the time when he was talking to people who thought they knew God very well, and they had studied the scriptures and could quote chapter and verse, but they were way, way off. And Jesus had to correct people's understanding of God, or at least try. They were usually pretty resistant. So where are we off when we think about God? Well, I want to look at our default setting, the way we live our Christian life, and tease out from that what we think about God. And then, hopefully, I'll offer some corrective to that. To do that, I need to go back in time to the 1990s and get some help from some Austrian bodybuilders. Um, if you watched Saturday Night Live in the 90s, you would remember Hans and Franz, brilliantly played by um, Kevin Nealon and Dana Carvey. And they give us, in the clip we're about to see, um, I would say a funny uh, but accurate depiction of how many people see the life of the Christian, the life of discipleship. Incidentally, we also see an athletic metaphor for soteriology that they'll give us. Dave, roll the clip. with Hans and Franz, the informative training program for the serious weightlifter. I'm so oh, All right, welcome, we're back. Uh, all right. Yeah, once again, I'm Hans. And I'm Franz, and we just, just want to hop. You are. All right, so now we've been on sabbatical for the last four months. That's right. Yeah. Some 300 scientists from 23 countries made an exhaustive study of our bodies to try to find out if we were real. Yeah, that's right. Could two men be this perfect? Is it genetically possible? Answer? Yeah. Conclusion affirmative. Now, I know we, we seem not to be real because we are beyond belief, but you can stop pinching yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wake up and smell the muscles. <laughs> All right, enough talk. We're not here to recite dry scientific jargon. We're here to introduce our first guest. All right. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, at this time, please welcome international film star, Mr. Patrick Swayze. Yeah, we'll find me someone who's not. That's right. Now, Patrick, this summer we saw you in a movie called The Ghost. Uh-huh. Now, its theme is the internal struggle between good and evil. The popped up versus the flabby. That's right. You know, in case you haven't seen the movie, Patrick plays a properly pumped up man who rises to heaven whilst the girly man loser is sucked down into his loser hole where he remains eternally flabby. <laughs> Well, that's pretty much what we were trying to say with the film. Yeah, all right. We know that. We know that. All right.
Well, that was gratuitous. No, I, I, I think what I was trying to get at there, uh, I wanted all of you to see that mullet, first of all. It's the most beautiful mullet of all time. They have this catchphrase, we're here to pump you up. And that was one of the big catchphrases of that era. And it seems to still survive in the way that many Christian speakers and preachers talk to their audiences. We're here to pump you up. And you've heard this story. You know, the, the role of a Christian is to exercise the muscle of your faith. And as you practice that, as you exercise it, you'll get stronger and you'll be a better Christian. So more prayer, more scripture memorization, more service, more morality, walk the labyrinth. Um, if you want to hear an account of this approach to spirituality, um, again, drawing on the deep riches in this American life, there's an episode called The Ten Commandments where a man named Dave Dickerson talks about his experience as a young Christian man trying to stamp out any uh, lustful thoughts in his life. It doesn't go well. So uh, many of us have inherited this view of the faith where we are trying to exercise the muscle and get stronger and get better. But I have a little problem with this. It doesn't work. Uh, and more than that, where is God? You know, he barely has a supporting role in that. This paradigm reflects a form of Christianity where we've got God wrong, and I would say we have him wrong in three ways. He's selective, he's passive, and he's uh, impotent. He's selective in that he's really only interested in you as long as you're looking good and getting better. He's passive because his main role seems to be simply to just stand by and watch and then judge you. And he's impotent in that apparently your Christian life is something that's entirely up to you and he's not that much help. In the default Christianity of our culture, God is selective, passive, and impotent. And if that leaves you saying, along with the black crows, can I have a remedy? Well, yes. And I'm going to uh, give you a little mockingbird remedy of the truth about God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. Because you have to begin and end with Jesus Christ. A lot of people try to think about God apart from Christ. John 1.8 says, no one has ever seen God. It sort of pulls the plug on an effort to sort of think about God. We, we don't know what we're talking about. No one has ever seen God. The only way that we get access to understanding God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything I do, I do it just because I've seen my Father doing it. So if you want to know God, look at Christ. So as we seek to combat these sort of misunderstandings of God, we'll look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, the truth about God, and we'll say, we'll, I'll begin with sort of the, the misconceptions uh, and then offer a word of truth. So I said there, that what we've picked up in this world around us, these misconceptions, first, that God is selective. He's interested in people who get it done. He's interested in people who perform. But in the face of that, what we see in, the, in Jesus Christ is that God is the friend of sinners. The Son of Man, Jesus says about himself, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how Jesus was known. It goes against our misconception that God's love is for the high achievers. Our idea that if Jesus was in high school, he would sit at the cafeteria table with the jocks and the cheerleaders, the pretty ones, the put-together ones. 
The friend of sinners is an idea that's hard for us to grasp. Even if we believe it intellectually, I think that in our hearts, we don't quite admit it. Because we have no other human relationships where that is true. Our relationships are quid pro quo, as much as we try for them not to be. There's always that element that gets in there. We're like the couple in the Beatles' um, uh, Hard Day's Night. Wonderful song, incredibly catchy. You're all now singing the chorus in your head, having just mentioned it. But it's actually a portrayal of a very dysfunctional relationship. You know I work all day to get you money to buy you things. But it's worth it just to hear you say you're going to give me everything. Quid pro quo. This for that. That's what human relationships are like. There's, and if it's not giving you material things, there's kind of this trading of status and uh, trying to build up um, our identities and our little projects of self. You promote me and I'll promote you. You see this clearly right now on a show on ABC called GCB which is a send-up of kind of um, uh, conservative, wealthy, Christian people in Dallas, particularly a group of women that are today acting out all the unresolved drama and trauma from their years in high school. And um, it's funny. Uh, don't watch it with sort of looking for serious social commentary. Have fun with it. Um, but in GCB, you see these women that are just trading status. If you want the lead in the church musical then you need to do this for me. It's in my business life. And, and there's all that trading of status and position in society. And that's what Davos is. You know, this little uh, village in Switzerland where they have this annual conference. The World Economic Forum sponsors it. And uh, in a recent story in The New Yorker, um, Nick Palmgarten talks about going to, uh, to Davos and uh, watching how all these people size each other up all day long. And if you go to Davos, you get a, uh, a badge, a name badge. Uh, and uh, it has a color. They're color-coded based on how much access you've been given. Do you just sort of go to the general sessions? Do you go to the sort of secret inner sanctum of where people decide the world's future? Um, you know, which level of uh, exclusivity are you? And he has this incredible quote. He says... The anxiety of exclusion pervades. The anxiety of exclusion pervades. So Davos, which is all the world's movers and shakers, is essentially just like high school, just with more billionaires and Nobel laureates. It's all the same. Larry Summers, Brad Pitt, Bill Clinton, everybody's trading status. Quid pro quo. It's the, it's the human uh, project. We're all so insecure, we're structuring our relationships to our advantage, to build our status, to build our reputation. But in the scriptures, you see Jesus Christ as somebody who, um, he seems like someone who would not go to Davos. He seems uh, like someone who, if he was forced to go there, would probably sneak out the back door. He goes out of his way every chance he gets to be near sinners, people who are broke, people who can't reciprocate. As Mike Horton talked about today, inviting people to dinner who can't pay you back. You know, in a patriarchal society, he honors women. In a culture obsessed with ethnic purity, Jesus heals Gentiles. In a tradition fastidious about religious observance, he heals on the Sabbath and eats with unwashed hands. In a world where power is the currency, he spends his time with the powerless and rejects any attempt to confer power on him. Jesus is the opposite of a social climber. 
He's a social descender. He's not building his resume. Um, there's a website run by a company called Reputation.com. The website is Reputation.com. And they want to help you build your online reputation. Jesus would not be a client. He seems, instead, he'd prefer to be on TMZ photographed with, you know, Kim Kardashian. You know, he wants to be with people that would bring... I'm sorry, Kim, if you're out there. You know what I mean. You know, he wants to be photographed in an unfavorable situation by the paparazzi, based on who he seemed to be hanging out with very publicly while he was doing his earthly ministry. He was not spending time with the right people. Now, why does this matter? It matters because... You know how you feel about how God feels about you when you fail? You know, when you've gone back to that website, when you have just spent three hours on Pinterest and you just meant to check it for five minutes, or um, you, um, you spent $500 at the outlet mall and you're trying to convince yourself that you saved a lot of money, uh, or you've just, you know... Um, you find yourself in the kitchen with a spoon and the peanut butter at, in, during Lent. <laughs> and then you remember that there's Hershey's syrup in the fridge. So uh, you know how you feel when you failed and how you feel about how God feels about you? Um, you know, and, and by the way, though, I have to stop and back up a second. Food this is for free. Um, food is the locus of all morality today. Nobody cares about sex anymore. If I can go back to GCB, the pastor, Pastor Tudor, this wonderful uh, 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 character on the show, who's really a nice guy, and he's giving a sermon about sex and encouraging uh, the sort of biblical understanding. It's a gift from God, et cetera, et cetera. And he, and, he, um, and he says it's for people who are married or otherwise entwined. I have no idea what that means otherwise entwined. I mean, I don't know. So nobody cares. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, nobody's worried about that anymore from a moral perspective. You know, those questions have been answered. We've moved on as a society. But where we're still very concerned about morality and people will still judge you is food. And you can hear it about in the way people talk about it. You know, um, I had the cheesecake. I was so bad. I'm going to be good and order the salad. You know, people who go to Whole Foods go to heaven. If you shop at Kroger, straight to hell. All our morality these days is about food. Watch commercials about food. You know, um, try our guilt-free dessert. The only language you hear using moral terms of good and bad these days, to me, seems to be about food. That's the only... So just think about that. And if you can figure that out, let me know. So again, that's for free. But you know how when you feel when you failed, whether it's with food or anything else, you feel like your badness pushes God away. Uh, you've got these spiritual cooties and God no longer wants anything to do with you until you grovel enough. And that doesn't seem to be the God revealed in the scriptures. Jesus Christ touched lepers. He touched those for whom mere contact would mean ritual impurity and uncleanness. And we know he didn't have to touch them to heal them, but he decided to touch their sores. The God figure in the story of the prodigal son, the parable in Luke 15 runs to embrace his son in his rags and his pig filth, runs to embrace him and hugs him and kisses him. Uh, he wants to be in close physical proximity 
with those who have failed. He, the, the parable of the good shepherd, you know, he leaves the 99 to go get that one lost sheep. He runs to those who have failed or found themselves lost. Have you sinned recently? Well, if I may quote Ace of Base, don't turn around. Because God is right behind you. God is right behind you. God runs to the sinner and the sufferer. He seeks and saves the lost, not the found. So God is not selective. He is the friend of sinners. Second, we said that we often believe that God is passive, that he just mostly watches from the sidelines and judges your routine. And you hear this all the time when you hear people talk about the Christian life. I mean, that seems to be the assumption. Um, God is like this fixed point in the universe, and it's your job to move closer to him. And depending on what you do and how you do it, you'll either move closer or farther away. You know, did you study the Bible? You're getting a little warmer. Did you, did you have a good time of prayer? Ooh, getting really, really warm. You, are you very moral? Um, you are, oh, you're so hot. Oh, 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 you forgot to pray? A little cooler, a little cooler. Watch Jersey Shore? Oh, ice cold. Ice cold. Against this view, we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God getting involved in the world in your life up to his neck and actually all the way. He could not have gotten more involved in human life. He could not have gotten more entwined with sinners like you and me. And what I simply want to say about this, this lie that God is sort of passive and just standing back and watching, is that actually, no, God is completely present in every moment of your life, whether you see it or not. And the fact that you don't see it it has nothing to do with God. It has a lot more to do with how you have determined God is allowed to act in your life. You know, we have places, arenas, where God is allowed to work. You know, he's allowed to work in your car when you're listening to Christian radio, but not the classic rock station. You know, he's allowed to work when you're at church or a Bible study. He can speak to you through those things, but he can't speak to you through TV. Um, you know, he's allowed to work in silent retreats. He's allowed to work when you're reading a Christian book. But we don't really think he's allowed to work in our eating disorders, our intemperate rages, our middle-of-the-night worrying, our debauchery. We don't think he's at work in our longing, our need, our desperation, our doubts. We're like Peter who couldn't even bear to hear the thought that Jesus Christ would be crucified and felt the need to rebuke the Lord. He was very excited about a Palm Sunday Jesus, a Mount of Transfiguration Jesus. But the crucified Jesus... God in his suffering, too much, too much. The God of the Bible, the crucified God, is intimately aware of you and your life. And not only is he aware, he is involved in all these off-limits areas. He's gone past the yellow caution tape into the crime scenes of your life. To bring you more and more to the end of yourself, to a place where you yield to him. God is not passive. He's actively involved in your life right now. And probably in ways and places you don't expect. God pursues you. Third, I said we have this 
understanding of God, this misunderstanding, unacknowledged, but basically there, that God is impotent. He's powerless. And the Bible, in contrast to that, shows us the power of God. Now, most people would say they completely disagree with this statement. I don't think that God is impotent. Let's stand up and sing Handel's Messiah right now. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. But that's, thank you. That's, um, that's mostly lip service. As uh, Mike Horton shared so powerfully, there's so much talk about building the kingdom. We need to build the kingdom of God. Pick any church website, and nine times out of ten, the mission statement, because if you are a church, you have to have a mission statement. Um, you're not allowed not to have one. And um, if you have one, nine times out of ten, it says that your mission has something to do with building the kingdom of God. The New Testament, have you ever noted, have you ever read it? Actually, because it says, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like a man who had a vineyard. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who went out to sow seed. The kingdom of God is like, it's here, it's a gift, it's given, it's God's kingdom. We don't build it or bring it or anything. As Mike Corden said, it's uh, quoting the scriptures, it's something we receive. So uh, we, however, all the time seem to talk about the kingdom as something that we have to do and build because it seems like at the end of the day, we believe that God is not powerful. He can't get it done on his own. Um, uh, and I can't tell you, again, um, look at our language, how we talk about God. Again, these, the, we've talked a lot at this conference about how there's this um, common tendency to, among preachers and, and speakers and teachers in the church and in the Christian world to challenge to challenge people. And at the end of those sermons, you do often hear a line where the preacher will say, yes, and the Holy Spirit does this work in us. Dot, dot, dot. But you, still, and that but you says it all because you're left with this idea that it's, it's up to you. In practice, that's ultimately what that means. If that's the last thing ringing in your ears but you, that's what you're going to focus on. Look at our language. We don't ask people, how has God been busy working in your life in areas of joy and areas of suffering? You don't hear that question very much. You hear Christians say to one another, how are you doing in your Christian walk? Not what is God doing, but how are you doing in your Christian walk? In this view of the Christian life, God is missing. Your success or failure as a Christian is up to you. Your choices, your decisions, your practices, your habits. God is the fixed point, and you can either get closer or farther away. Now, I'm not saying your practices, habits, actions, choices, decisions don't matter. But I just, and if you want to put more weight there, that's fine. But I just want to point out to you that in your relationship with God, there are two people in the room. God is there too. And he's not twiddling his thumbs. He's doing something. We can talk about what that is, but he's there. Paul in the Bible says in Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. God began the work, he's doing the work, and he will bring it to completion. That's what the Bible says. He began the work, he is doing the work, and he will bring it to completion. It's his project. And I just have a question. 
What would it mean in your life if that was actually true? What if God cared about your spiritual life? What if he already had a plan of what he wanted to do in your heart and mind? What if he's already plotting your recovery and freedom? And what if the Holy Spirit, the one we confess in the creed as the Lord and giver of life, what if he's actually in you and able to bring to completion the work that God has begun? We often forget also that this is a process that God has a lot of time to complete. Eternity, as a matter of fact. And our need to get better yesterday, our New Year's resolutions, etc., has more to do with how we would like to see ourselves, not some purported desire for holiness. I mean, that's what we say, but really it's kind of how we want to see ourselves. It's about us. Because there's only one person who can actually rightly see and measure your holiness. Remember I said we're blind. And that one person who can actually see your holiness and understand it, he seems to believe that he's taking care of it on the cross. Holiness seen in light of the New Testament is something based not on our adherence to rules, because the Pharisees were pretty good at that and Jesus called them a bunch of snakes, but on our reliance on Christ. When Jesus was asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who, whom he has sent. John chapter 6, 28 through 29. I didn't make it up. In light of Christ, holiness before God is not something measured by adherence to the law, or at least our adherence to the law, but it's something given to us through the work of Christ on the cross. It has nothing to do with you. The ultimate author of your sanctification is Christ, not you. The process is his. In a very real way, it's not your job. In a very real way, it's not your business. Your job now, as it was in the beginning, is to trust in Christ and yield to the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, as I've already said, he is in you in so many ways in your life. In your fears, in your doubts, in your failures, in your sins, in your wants, in your frustrations, in your marriage, in your job, in your parenting, in your late nights and in your early mornings, God is present. And that God, again, is not the selective, passive, impotent God of our imaginings, but he is the friend of sinners, the actively involved good shepherd who seeks the lost sheep. He's the powerful savior who begins, continues, and ends the work that needs to be done in you. What I hope to leave you with today, for you to take with you today and wherever you go tomorrow, is an accurate or more accurate view of the God who loves you. I want you to have a robust view of the saving, breaking down the walls God of the Bible. So much Christian spirituality these days has God on the back of the milk carton. Have you seen me? God's missing because your faith is all about your self-improvement and the agent of that project is you when it gets right down to it. Our anthropology, our view of human capability has gotten so high that we are center stage and God is pushed to the edges. You know, he occasionally has a cameo role. The only problem with that is that we're trying to fix something that's broken ourselves with something that's broken ourselves. 
It's a little bit like going into your driveway and seeing you have a flat tire and then demanding that your car fix the tire. Or like going to the ER with appendicitis and as you're laying on the operating table and the surgeon comes in, you say, I'll take it from here, doc. Scalpel? The truth is that often we can't see what's wrong with ourselves and even if we could, we don't really have the tools to do it, at least not on the deepest level. We can fake it for a little while, but there's not going to be any lasting change. So let's put down the scalpel. God is the creator of all things, including you, and he knows you. He is the great healer, and he knows the remedy you need. He's the only one that knows how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So let's put down the scalpel, give it back to the one who knows how to use it, and let's get out of the way. And you may begin to notice God at work. You may begin to um, notice, lost your temper at the office? God is working. Lost your patience at your child? God is working. Spent another day obsessing about calories? God is working. Had another bender? God is working. In those things, in all the stuff of life, you know, of course he's working in the birth of your child, and of course he's working in uh, the wonderful conversation you had with an old friend. You know that. But what I want to say is that God is at work in all of your life. We believe in a God who has not been banished from the dark corners, but one who comes to us in those very places. He's the friend of sinners. He's actively pursuing you. He's powerful and able to bring to completion the work that he has begun. So get out of the way. Thank you very much. Okay, we have time for a few questions, I believe. <clears throat> questions, complaints? Yes. I want to come over to see you beautiful people over there. You've been obscured. I haven't been able to see you. Um, do, you do you think that humans have free will? <laughs> Next question. Dave, if I heard that correctly, do humans have free will? There are many areas in life where, for all intents and purposes, it does seem like we have free will. Every day. You know, you choose sushi and not barbecue. Um, so there are many places where you choose that. But you know what? It's, it's funny. I was packing for this conference, and usually I don't have a lot of problem um, getting dressed in the morning. But I was packing for this conference, and you've got all sorts of space constraints, what with you have to take a carry-on because nobody checks luggage anymore so you can't bring that much you have to plan your outfits carefully and I'm worried about what all of you are gonna think about me you know how will you receive me because I need you to love me because I'm just as guilty of everything I've just talked about you know the need for approval and affirmation and all that sort of stuff so um, I was very careful and I laid out all these outfits and I'm asking Andrea you know does this go with this and does this work with that and um, and she says you're crazy put the paisley away so did I have free will to pack my suitcase? Did I have free will to choose these khakis? Yes and no. I mean, I chose them, I guess. But I certainly didn't feel free in doing so. Uh, uh, I, think, I think there are... Um, because you all are so judgmental. 
So I, I mean, I think um, for the areas of life that I think really matter, in my observation, people do not seem to be that free. That's what I want to say about that. Next question. Tess um. Mullen. <laughs> Softball, please. Um, sorry. Um. Do you believe in predestination? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, how do you, how do you let go and let God work? So the question, how do you let go and let God work? Um, well, great question. And I want to say something I, I, I said, which is that, um, again, if we remember that the spiritual life is something where there's two people involved, you and God, um, sometimes it's not so much about you letting go as it is about God ripping it out of your hands. Um, I find that there's a lot of life where God will sort of help you to let go. Um, uh, God will, will, will um, uh, kill you so that you can be raised to new life. I mean, baptism, yes, it's a symbol of washing, but it's also a symbol of death and of drowning. Um, and so uh, that seems to be something deeply true about the Christian life and about life. Um, so how do you let go? Um, there's a little bit in, in asking the question um, where there, there, I'm not saying this about you, Tess, but there could be where it's sort of like um, there's again this sort of wanting to insert myself into this whole process. Um, I think letting go is a giving up and you'll do it when you come to the place where you have to give up. Um, and God, again, he's, he, he loves you so much and he's so already involved in your life and he knows what you need to give up and what you need to let go and, and he'll, he'll get you there. And the fact that you're kind of thinking about that means that he's already in the room. Could it be, Aaron, that it's very hard to choose to kill yourself? <laughs> That's a dark, dark question. Well, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. Um, yes. Is there something more you wanted to say about that, Joseph? I feel you're, you're a thoughtful person, who, and I think you've got something cooking. Yeah. We, we began the time here today with the epistle of 2 Corinthians, mm -hmm. where the word encouragement was used a, a number of times in comfort. And then we had the epistle of Hans and Franz, where the phrase, pump you up, was used several times. What's the difference? Yeah, so the question, what's the difference? Um, I think pump you up, at least as I'm thinking about it here in this sort of farcical way, but in a way that it's really applied in our lives, um, is that we need to get busy with the project of making ourselves better through our own efforts over time. Um, and I think the, and there certainly may be times in life where that's good. You know, if you're taking the MCAT, you should probably study for it. Um, uh, if you have communication issues in your marriage, you know, get therapy and, and read a book about communication or something like that. Um, but um, in terms of what we need in our relationship with God, uh, as the scripture says, it, it, it assumes that we're suffering and that we need comfort. 
um, that we need a word of hope and a word of mercy. And essentially, we need to hear that, that we're loved and that God is in control, that he's ultimately aware of the situation and uh, on top of things. So, uh, the, yeah. Because to be, for you to pump up, it means that you're the one that needs to make sure the story has a happy ending, which is far from comforting. Um, because... Um, I don't know about you, but my life, if it were up to me, I, it would not end well. It would be a French film. <laughs> or a Russian novel. Hey, man. Aaron, uh, given the anthropology that you talked about today, uh, yesterday and what you told us about God today, uh, how can we have uh, healthier views of discipleship and accountability uh, in the church? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, okay. I do. So discipleship Good. and accountability are words that are used in churches, and they're sort of um, euphemisms for control and management. They're, they're what Dr. Horton talked about this morning. Um, I think it's interesting that the word disciple means student, and it's used in the Bible to talk about the people who follow Jesus. The word discipleship is not used, but people are described as disciples. And if you think about that, it's not, it just, to be, you hear people talk about being a disciple of Christ, and the word disciple often has, has a connotation of sort of a higher level of attainment. You know, uh, yes, I was a Christian, then I became a real disciple of Christ, you know, a real, you know, committed person. And when they talk about discipleship, it has this aura of, you know, now you're moving up to the big leagues, you know, like the Jeffersons, moving on up. And, um, a disciple in the Bible is, means a student of Jesus. You could have, it could be your first day of class or you could be getting a master's degree. But they're all disciples. You could be a good student or a bad student. You might be getting good grades or bad grades. But they're all, so a disciple is anyone who follows Jesus. And I think discipleship, and the way churches talk about it, it's often portrayed as this thing of um, people working hard to get better. And, and it's, it's sort of a test of how, how, how committed are you how much of a disciple are you? Uh, what is the level of your discipleship? And I think one thing I would want to insert into the conversation about discipleship in churches is to say that um, anybody who's trying to follow Jesus, whether half-heartedly or um, with their whole heart or anywhere in between, they're a disciple. If you're a student of Jesus Christ and you're trying to follow him on some level, you're in the club of disciples. I don't know if you're Peter, I don't know if you're John, I don't know if you're Andrew, or you're Doubting Thomas, or which one you are, but they were all disciples. So that's one thing I'd want to say about discipleship. Accountability um, is a thing where people uh, um, ask you to reveal what's going on in your life. Um, it, and I find it often it creates... In some, I've had good accountability and bad accountability. An accountability group, for those of you that are you know, not uh, well-versed in sort of Christian culture in the latter half of the 20th century and the beginning of 21st century America, if you don't know who Amy Grant is, for example, or Michael W. Smith, or any of these things, um, accountability groups are groups where you meet to confess your sins to a group of people, and through shame you'll get better together. Um, and so uh, I've been in groups where we talk honestly about what's going on in our lives. We offer no advice, no comment. It's a safe place of freedom to talk about what you actually have done or thought about doing or whatever. And then to pray for each other. Um, I'd like to start comfort groups. Accountability, um, there's, there's fear there. 
if you are accountable, it means you have to give an answer. And it's, I mean, it just, it so presupposes judgment. Um, now, and, th- and there could be accountability groups that you've been in that you haven't felt that. And praise God for that. But there are often elements in which there's fear and judgment, um, carrot and stick sort of thing, which um, means that if the only reason you're doing a good thing is so that you don't get the stick, it means it's a, it's a morally vacant action. There's no, there's no um, good credited to you, right? Because Jesus says everything you do has to be done from a place of perfect motivation. You have to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. You can't do it to be seen by others. You can't do it for credit. You, can't, you, you have to almost not think about it and just do it because you want to do it. And if you're doing it for any other reason, it doesn't count. You've got to go back to the beginning. Go back to the start. So um, accountability, if that's what's pushing you um, to get better, uh, it may get better, but it's not the kind of better that God ultimately wants for you. It, it, it was said so well today, not a better you, but a new you.